0: You're listening to Cloudies with a Chance of Scripture. Let's just start in Genesis and move forward. Last week, we met the serpent. We talked a lot about him and how he is, in a sense, an embodiment of Satan as uh, the New Testament writers saw him. And uh, now the serpent, Satan, is going to offer a temptation to Eve. So Genesis 3, 1 is where we start. will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, that's where we're going to pause right there on verse 5, because this is where the whole conversation gets started as early as Genesis 3, 5, okay? Uh, So let me read that verse again. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Okay, so right here, we all naturally have this idea that uh, the um, ability to distinguish between good and evil, or to have that kind of knowledge, is to to be like God. But um, here's something that a lot of us miss, and this is probably actually wise on interpret uh, on translators' parts, just due to the way that we would misunderstand it very greatly today. Okay. So the word for God is Elohim. Elohim can be translated in a uh, singular way or a plural way. Uh, In other words, you might have God or you might have gods, right? Uh, Which would be like divine beings, okay? So uh, right here, many translators uh, would point out that uh, the statement Should be God the first time he's mentioned, and then gods the second time uh, the word Elohim is used. So here's what you heard. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now read it again the way that uh, some translators would say it should be read. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like the gods, knowing good and evil. Now, how do we come to the conclusion that it's plural here? Uh, Well, translators, you know, do their job to understand Hebrew well. But if you fast forward to verse 22, perhaps you remember what God says later, right? He says, after they've eaten of the tree uh, that they weren't supposed to eat of, it says this in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. One of us, in other words, plural. He's become like one of the gods knowing good and evil. Now you might need to go back a few podcast episodes and listen to this. Um, but right here, behold, the man has become like one of us. Uh, people in Christian uh, world often say like God's talking about the Trinity. But we've already talked about this uh, God's talking about the heavenly host, okay? Uh, the angels, if you will, because earlier in Genesis, if we were to rewind, we saw God say, let us make man in our own image. Understand, God is the only creator. He's the only one who created. He said, let's go make man in our image. But then it clearly shows that God then went and made man in his image. He was the one who did all of the work. Again, Michael Heiser says uh, uh, that it's like telling people, let's go get pizza. You know, then God paid for the pizza but it was still like <laughs> a statement before that. Let's all go get pizza. But then God was the one who initiated it, paid for it, made it, so on and so forth. Okay. So all that being said, the heavenly hosts are already present before uh, the creation of the earth. And when God is talking to spiritual beings throughout uh, these the creation story in Genesis, it, when he's talking in like plural form, let us make man in our image. He's telling the, the heavenly hosts, I'm the only one who's going to make them, but you know, I'm kind of inviting you to watch what I'm going to do. Again, you fast forward to Job and you see Job talk about how, uh, the spiritual beings rejoiced as they watch God create. So that right there, Job's image lines up with exactly, um, the, the creation story, as, as God said it, right? So, right here, we shouldn't be thinking that God's saying he became like one of us, he became like part of the Trinity, because again, that concept is far, far away from what uh, the Genesis writers were talking about, because they didn't have that concept yet. So, instead, God's talking to the heavenly hosts. And the heavenly hosts, in this particular instance, gets referred to as little g gods, okay? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like the gods, knowing good and evil. Now, we are absolutely 100% Christianity is 100% a monotheistic religion. Okay? Uh, In other words, we believe that there is only one God. Only one God. There is one God who created everything, one God who. Uh, is responsible for spiritual creation, for physical creation. There is nothing that exists that Yahweh Himself, the one God, has created. However, uh, little G gods do exist in the Bible. and that's that's what throws us off a little bit because then we're like, well, okay, so then there's there's other gods too. And no, there's there's not because the other gods are nothing like Yahweh. They're nothing like the one true God. They just get this term little g-gods attributed to them because they are spiritual beings. In fact, you even see human beings sometimes get this, uh, the word gods attributed to them. I know that sounds weird, but fast forward to the famous scene of Saul trying to call up, uh, Uh, the witch of Endor, and asking the witch of Endor to get a hold of Samuel, uh, since he's dead, to get a hold of him in the afterlife. You remember this? Uh, So, if you were to go to 1 Samuel 28, you see this witch actually summon forth Samuel, his spirit, and the witch says to Saul in uh, 28.13, I see a god coming up out of the earth. Right there, you actually have a statement that suddenly Samuel is is referred to as a little G God. What's that all about? And the easiest way to kind of explain it is that like spiritual beings, um, sometimes in Old Testament language, just become synonymous with the word little G God. They are spiritual beings and therefore they are sometimes referred to as spirits and sometimes referred to as gods, it seems. So, you see this play out in other ways throughout uh, throughout the Bible. Okay, you see, um, you see the angels often get known as gods or the sons of God. So there's all different kinds of angels. There's uh, cherubim, seraphim. You've got uh, um, watcher angels. You've got just angels which are like messengers. That's kind of the interpretation of the word angels. But then um, you have, you know, just these various forms. But these angels sometimes get known as gods or sons of God. Uh, and that's going to take us into the Deuteronomy thirty-two worldview here in a few minutes. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I just want to show you some pretty straightforward passages where the little g gods of the world that God has created are understood to be real beings, okay? So they're not God, they're nothing like the one true God, the one creator God, the God who rules over the gods, Um, but he is, uh, but uh, these beings are understood to be real. So 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6 in the New Testament, you find Paul say this, therefore, as to eating the food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and there is no God but one. Right? He's saying just what I'm saying, there is only one God. But then he goes on to say, "'For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or, or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things through and through whom we exist.'" That right there is exactly what I'm saying, right? We sometimes think that uh, Paul's sarcasm means that he's he uh, doesn't believe in the other gods. But he actually, you know, it's sarcasm in a sense that he's using sarcasm to insult the other gods, right? So let me read it with his tone that I think is really going on here. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us, there is one God. So in one breath, Paul is saying there is only one God, one capital G God, one God who made all beings. But at the same time, yeah, sure. There's so-called many little G gods, many Lords, but only God, only God, one God. So (laughs) it, it sounds, it sounds weird, but this is, this is biblical monotheism. Okay. Um, Monotheism, as we usually teach it today, is just like uh, there's one God and all the other gods don't exist. But the Bible seems to believe that the other gods, while they were not God and they weren't even, you know, gods per se, they still were real spiritual beings that people were following. Uh, The Bible continues to paint this picture. 1 Corinthians 10 20 says what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. That's a very important passage right there because it's now linking the false gods with demons. And, well, not all Christians believe that demons are real. I very much do. I've cast them out before. I've seen how real they are. Uh, But now you see Paul saying, like, those demons, those ones, those beings that you cast out, I mean, those right there, those are uh, the, the spiritual figures hiding behind the false gods, if you will. And if you were to look deeper into the Bible, you'd see that there's different levels of, uh, um, just as there's different kinds of angels, there's also kind of different levels of of demons or different things that get classified as demons. So uh, it's not necessarily just like any demon you come across might be recognized as a little g god, but maybe some of the principalities and powers, which Paul also talks about, those might be recognized as as uh, especially the false gods out there, okay? All right, Uh, Revelation 9.20 also talks about demons being known as the false gods. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. So right here you have John who wrote Revelation saying... Yeah, all those false idols that people worship, the beings that are behind those idols, are are demons. In other words, they're real spiritual beings. They're not gods, but they do. Ex- they aren't. They aren't nothing either. Okay, so we've seen that the the false gods exist in the New Testament uh, as as beings that were thought to be real, or as mm, demons that masquerade. Uh, as uh, you know, powerful entities, but we see it in the Old Testament too. Uh, the word demon is almost never in the Old Testament, uh, but one of the passages we have echoes everything that we just learned. Deuteronomy 32, 17 says, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently who your fathers had never dreaded. So right there in in the old testament you've already have this uh this connection between demons and between the little g gods they are not just nothing there is something on the other side people are not just following like a a religion that they made up or a being that they made up the bible understood that there's there's stuff that's actually there now you might be asking yourself you know like Why on earth are there false gods in the first place? Like, why would God create them? And the Bible actually gives that answer. It's kind of startling. But in Deuteronomy 32, where we just were, we back up a few verses to Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, and we find a passage that is monumental to understand this. Here's what it says. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob, His allotted heritage. Now you see this continue Deuteronomy 4:19 through 20 as well. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and moon and stars, all the hosts of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. It's Deuteronomy 4, 19 through 20. And right here, you have this understanding that um, Abraham and everyone who follows his genetic line is God's inheritance. While God has turned over other people groups, he's divided them up among other spiritual beings to take care of them. Okay. So this actually, uh, traces back to the tower of Babel, uh, when he divided mankind and fixed the borders of the peoples, uh, he did that according to the number of the sons of God. That's what Deuteronomy 32, eight through nine says. And it's understanding that at Babel, when people got new languages, they were spread out. So, uh, God, God looked at the sons of God, which were like, uh, higher up the chain on the spiritual beings list of angels, if you will, and he uh, assigned each one of them, you take care of this group, you take care of this group, you take care of this group, and then as for God, he's like, there's one guy, Abraham, that one, I get him, and everything that comes out of him is mine, So it seems like God sets up the world at the Tower of Babel to say, I'm going to put all my focus into this one genetic line and uh, they're going to bless the earth and they're going to, uh, eventually we're going to get Jesus out of this one genetic line, right? Uh, But in the meantime, all these other stubborn human beings who continue to not follow me, but instead they're making this tower. I told them to spread out. Instead, they've grouped up. Uh, instead of following me, they're all focused right here. Y- you know what? I'm going to assign them to to others, and I'm going to start a new thing with Abraham. That's that's the story of the Tower of Babel. So that's a very important story for us, right? Okay. So um, what happens is apparently these uh, sons of God, whom God assigned over the other nations, they become corrupt. They don't do their job. So we learned in a previous podcast that angels, spiritual beings are made in the image of God, just like we're made in the image of God, right? Uh, For let us make man in our image. That's what Genesis says. And if we believe that God is talking not to the Trinity, but to spiritual beings, then he's talking to people in his image saying, all right, now let's go make man in our image. In other words, God's like the same image I made you in, which is my image. Now we're going to make physical imagers as well imagers in the heavenlies, imagers in the physical world. So you would think that if God put uh, spiritual beings in charge of nations after he divided them at Babel, then you would think that those spiritual beings are supposed to image God to the people that they are to rule over, right? My guess is that's how it started. Uh, From what we see is they eventually all become corrupt. All of these spiritual beings mess up. So, Psalm 82 is the one that teaches us this. You fast forward to Psalm 82, and here's what you see. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, already, you probably wouldn't have been able to hear this verse um, very easily, except for the fact that we now kind of have a better understand of God and the little g-gods, if you will. So, God is pictured right here in a boardroom. He pulls together all of the gods whom he has assigned um, leadership to and now he holds judgment. So let's continue reading. Psalm 82, one through eight. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute rescue the weak and the needy deliver from the hand deliver them from the hand of the wicked they have neither knowledge nor understanding they walk about in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken i said you are gods sons of the most high all of you nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince arise o god judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. This is a very, very powerful passage in light of everything we've been saying. God calls together all of the gods that he put in charge of nations, and then he judges them because they have done such a horrible job at imaging him. Uh, And some of the things that they haven't done, they haven't been taking care of the poor. Uh, They uh, seem to have teamed up with wicked human beings. They're not giving justice they're afflicting human beings. Uh, they're not rescuing the weak and the needy. And God judges them for this. He tells them that they're going to die like men because of how badly they've done their job. And that, of course, takes us to Revelation where spiritual beings are are judged for what they've done and their lives are, are ended in the pit so that uh, uh, you know they can no longer continue to torture humanity in the way that they have. So here you find, uh, God coming to judge the false gods and the psalmist declares arise. O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. That right there is, is back to Babel, right? You divided the nations up at Babel, but one day you're going to end all of the false gods and you're going to inherit all of, of the nations from, from them. Uh, You, you, you take them all. That's, That's why evangelism is so important. I just read an article the other day that uh, I think it's like 40 some percent of Christians think that it's wrong to evangelize, which is very shocking (laughs) because this is the whole point going all the way back to the Old Testament. God starts with Abraham and he's like, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless all nations. And then we fast forward to Psalm 82 and it's like, actually God's going to overthrow all of the the beings that he put in charge of the other nations and he's going to take them all back they're all going to be his that's the time frame we live in right now as christians is god wants all of the human beings of the world to join his family because he's love and he doesn't want to see anyone hurting. He doesn't want to see anyone afflicted and 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 destitute and weak and needy. And that's what the false gods have been doing to human beings. So he wants to deliver them and bring them into his kingdom and establish this this new utopia of, of Eden in the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation. Okay? So we are in the middle of spiritual warfare. You've got spiritual beings on God's side, spiritual beings on Satan's side, and there is power on both sides. And it is being duked out on, all around us. And then there's us who who make a difference in this world, who, who are on a mission to, to change things around us. And we have a decision that we have to make. Are we gonna team up with the false gods and therefore find ourselves following them into their kingdom of hell? Or are we going to team up with God and follow him into the kingdom of heaven? Even if you think about Jesus, you know, he's got that famous passage where he's separating the goats from the sheep. And if you realize, like, the sheep are the ones who get into heaven, and part of the reason that they get into heaven is because they took care of the destitute and the afflicted and the weak and the needy. They showed justice. They did good things to other people. Right here in Psalm 82, God's like, the beings that don't do those things, they're done for. And so Jesus kind of continues to show us that message. The human beings who also joined the false gods in doing those things, they're done for. But Jesus doesn't want anyone to be done for. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he, he sent uh, that's why God sent His Son in the first place, so that He could inherit all nations through the blood of the cross. And even if you look at Revelation, like a lot of people look at Revelation as like this violent book of God just bringing an end to to uh, I mean, just like you know this huge violent war. And for sure, you do see interesting portraits of violence in Revelation. But if you pay close attention, you'll see like God is constantly constantly offering salvation to people throughout the entire book of Revelation. Like, you're already well into uh, the book when God's still like, hey, you know, get saved, come to me. <laughs> he, he doesn't want anyone to perish, and the Bible Bible tells us that, you know? Uh, so, like, this is the story that we're currently in. Uh, and you see this in the very gift of tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, it's an evangelistic statement. In the Old Testament, people were divided amongst the false gods by their languages. In the New Testament, God says, now I'm taking all of the nations back. Here's the languages I divided them up as. Use this gift. Go out and start declaring the wonders of who I am so that they know that they are being invited to join my family. Like, every time if you practice the gift of tongues every time you practice it that should be running through your head this gift is a statement not only of how great god is because that's what the people in acts heard tongues being interpreted as it's not just a, a statement of how great god is but it's a statement that when i practice this gift i am reminding myself that god wants everyone to be saved and wants to Uh, pull people out of the grip of the false gods who are lesser than him, who he is going to end, whom he's given power and authority to. And uh, rather than use that power and authority to image God, they've used it to oppress humanity and oppress God. And we actually see this story play out in, uh, in the book of Daniel. Very strange story. Uh, One you've probably heard me talk about a lot because it's just a very clear illustration of what we see in the uh, uh, spiritual warfare realm. So if you were to go into Daniel, what you would find there is this very strange story in which Daniel wants God to give him some understanding on something. And he prays and he asks God and God instantly dispatches an angel to come and talk to Daniel. However, the angel doesn't show up on time. So Daniel's left fasting. Uh, He's fasting in hopes that God will give him this answer. It's been 21 days since he prayed, and finally the angel shows up, and this is what the angel says. "'Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words.' The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to you, to your people in the later days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So, this angel is dispatched to go talk to Daniel as soon as Daniel prays, but he doesn't make it to Daniel for 21 days. Why? because he's duking it out with the prince of the kingdom of persia that right there should also scream volumes in light of the things that we're talking about spiritual warfare is going on because of daniel's prayer an angel is late to show up to him because the angel that went to give daniel his message had to fight with a a spirit that had ownership over the kingdom of Persia, that right there would kind of be a general understanding of of what a a, a little G God is. In this case, he's referred to as a prince. Uh, likewise, we see more princes referred to. There's there's Michael, who's we know as an archangel, right? So Michael is a prince that takes care of uh, Israel. But uh, in order to get to Daniel. Um, you know, there there was still fights with other territorial spirits, like the prince of the kingdom of Persia. It doesn't end there either, because uh, if you fast forward, we're in Daniel uh, 10, by the way. If you da- fast forward to Daniel 10, 20, you see the angel say, uh, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I'd tell this, uh, then he goes on to mention again, Michael, your prince in verse 21. So, here you go, prince of Persia, prince of Greece, and then uh, the prince of of Daniel who who serves God. Apparently, this archangel Michael serves God, as we also see in Revelation. Uh, Michael is is not corrupt as a spiritual being with with power to to image God. So, yeah, prince of Greece, prince of Persia. These are spiritual beings over territories that have spiritual powers. Uh, And we see territorial spirits seem to play out throughout uh, the Bible elsewhere, right? Think about uh, the demons and the pigs. If you were to go into the New Testament, Jesus casts demons uh, out of the garrison demoniac into pigs. And the reason he sends them into pigs, if you remember, is because the demons are like, please uh, don't send us out of the country, (laughs) Why are demons afraid of leaving the country? Can they not, you know, they're spirits. Why are they afraid of, of leaving a territory? That seems strange until you realize the Bible has already illustrated to us that spiritual beings often get assigned to different areas over different people. Their authority is is specific to certain nations. So, Perhaps these demons didn't want to leave the country because they were assigned to work along, uh, or they weren't assigned by God, if you will, Uh, but these demons had chosen to team up with a specific um, uh, territorial spirit over that. And I feel like if we just look throughout history, we see territorial spirits play out in other ways. I mean, I know it seems like everything always comes back to Hitler because it's such an extreme example But when you look at the things that happened in Germany, especially because it was oppressive towards God's people, like it's just amazing that humanity could become like that. I mean, this was, this wasn't that long ago, you know, this was in the 1900s. Suddenly in the midst of democracy, Hitler becomes a dictator and, Oppresses the Jews, overthrows all kinds of things. And when you look at even the rules that Hitler made for churches, they're clearly demonic rules. I mean, they get rid of, uh, you can't baptize children with water, with the Holy Spirit. Uh, The list uh, as to the Bible gets replaced with swords, things like this. Uh, Churches under Hitler were turned into uh, occultic, demonic places. It, It just becomes very clear when you. Look at the story from a distance. You're like, it's like these people are under the grasp of a territorial spirit. Because how could an entire nation just fall prey to this suddenly? It's just beyond our imagination. And that's what I really like about uh, Wonder Woman. Uh, You know, the recent DC movie. Is that when they retell the Hitler story, they actually took on this idea that there was a, a false little G God that had basically taken over all of germany and and kind of like kind of convinced them to to worship this false god and follow him into all the oppression that he brought upon germany so like wonder woman just paints a very interesting example of spiritual warfare i know it's fiction of course you don't have this superhero lady fighting off a false god to bring freedom from the minds of of oppressed Germany following a false god, but it paints a very interesting image as to what very well could make sense as to what was going on in Germany when you look at the way that the Bible presents territorial uh, spirits, okay? Uh, The same thing makes sense of other crazy things like the Hutus and the Tutsis. I mean, man, there's just this crazy genocide in recent times in which 800,000 to a million Rwandans were murdered and three quarters of the Tutsi population were exterminated. How does that just happen? It just seems unhuman. And I suggest to you it's because it is. There's more at play in the spiritual realm there. I mean, even when you look at the stories, one Hutu said the worst thing about the massacre was killing my neighbor. We used to drink together. His cattle would graze on my land. He was like my relative. How do you go from that to suddenly just like, sorry, I got to kill you even though you're my good friend? It's it's unthinkable. Another Hutu mother talked about killing the children next door who had been her neighbors and her friends. Someone just gave her a club and told them that uh, the Tutsis were her enemies and so she went over and and she killed them. Like This is demonic fallen power kind of madness it's beyond human it's so much more than just uh, sociology it goes much deeper than that so uh, I also do want to say this though like the people who did these things are completely responsible even if they were uh, being pushed or compelled by a false power to do such evils um, they still have a choice in the end what they're going to do so and that's the same story with all demonic stories you come across you know somebody might uh, be involved in a specific kind of addiction or problem because of a demonic uh, oppression on their life but that doesn't mean that they're therefore um, just free of any responsibility that's that's not how it works. We have the choices every day as to if we're going to team up with, With that kind of oppression or not it it adds a little bit of of uh, leeway to say okay so you had a whole lot more against you than just uh, your own problem or your own addiction but at the same time it's still saying uh, you still had a choice because nobody is possessed per se oppressed but possessed to the point of unwilling to un being unable to make their own decision I don't think anyone's possessed by a demon to that kind of magnitude, if you will. Okay, so um, we've talked a lot today. This has taken us into a lot of different conversations, and it all happens because we started in Genesis 3. It all starts because uh, we we fall prey to Satan's sin and... Uh, when we ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we attained a wisdom of good and evil uh, that, uh, that uh, made us like the gods, if you will. That is, it made us like the little G spiritual beings who God had granted them the ability to have that kind of wisdom. Human beings had not been given that wisdom or at least had not been given that wisdom yet human beings took it after satan convinced them that uh they should right so the gods were made in god's image and they had that kind of uh, um that kind of knowledge already we weren't supposed to and we took it and after we did that god's like okay now they become like one of us they become like like the spiritual beings who have this kind of wisdom so now we we partially deal with a difficult life because we have something that we weren't supposed to have or we weren't supposed to have yet, you know? Uh, even if you think about the law, I mean, the law of the Old Testament is a long list of 600 rules to discern between good and evil, and it's given us so much uh, pain just to like try to live up to this 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 law that's come with our knowledge. So, I don't know. I I just say all that uh, to try to give us a biblical worldview. Um, I think translators may feel oftentimes like they should say uh, they should translate that that singular capital G God to lowercase plural gods. But the reason they don't do it is because in today's culture, if we read that, we'd be like, whoa, hold up. What do you mean gods? And we would turn that into heresy. We would be like, okay, so there's many gods and we can choose any. It's it's uh, uh, polytheism. It's not monotheism. Monotheism is there's one God. Polytheism is there's many gods. There's also another idea of henotheism, which is like, there's lots of gods, but one is preferable. Uh, all of those, those ideas are heresy. The The Bible teaches monotheism. There is only one God who has created everything, spiritual, physical. It is all his creation. And some of the beings that he created are beings that the Bible is going to refer to both in Old Testament and New Testament as little g gods, whom could be also seen very easily as angels. Uh, In fact, it seems like the the people who translated the New Testament for uh, the Greeks, so the Bible that Jesus would have read, the the Greek Bible, um, and the New Testament writers would have read, a lot of times when these Greek translators came in contact with like godly like beings, they would just translate it over to angels because obviously they they seem to be concerned that people would have the same problem and think, oh, there's all kinds of gods. And so they said, no, 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 there's, there's one God and lots of angels, right? That was their way to try to like bring into Greek this understanding that there's only one God. In the same way, people when they make our Bibles uh, might say, uh, might translate like God's like, now, now they're made like God. They might do that instead of the plural little g gods because they don't want people to misunderstand what the Bible is saying. Today, we just spent 40 minutes (laughs) trying to explain the usage of the word little g gods, Elohim, you know. So, you can see why it's a complicated subject. Alright, so I hope that we have covered it well, Um, but in case we haven't, a few things you can do. Uh, The books that I've been recommending are still excellent resources on this topic. You can check out The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. He explains this very well. If that book seems a little too intense, then check out his book Supernatural, which is a less comprehensive version of the same thing. Or you can go to Greg Boyd and his book God at War. Or at the end of my book The Rush and the Rest, uh, I have this whole section um, about the Divine Council, which is more or less what we've talked about today, a boardroom of little G gods that uh, are under God's control that he has made. So uh, I'll even give you a free promo code if you just want to download the audiobook, I can give you that. Or if you want a digital version, a PDF, I can send that to you. So just go to our webpage and write in the contact format. Leave your name, email, and then send that to me so I can get you Um, everything I just said in a more uh, written form so it can can help you out a bit